compassion is really the essence, the fuel of the humanitarian impulse to assist, to save lives. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Next Page, the podcast designed to advance a conversation on multilateralism by the UN Library and Archives, Geneva. I'm Kathleen Lingsui, and I might seem like a new voice to you, and that's because I'm usually the producer behind the podcast, but today, for once, I'll be behind the mic. In this episode, you will be listening to a conversation between our director, Francesco Pisano, and Gilles Carbonet about the economics of humanitarian action. Gilles Carbonet is a specialist in the domain of humanitarian response, who's worked as a practitioner in the field of humanitarian missions in countries like Iraq and Egypt. He's also worked in headquarters contributing to making humanitarian policies for institutions like Doctors Without Borders and the ICRC. Carbonet is also an economist whose research and publications focus mainly on the economics of humanitarian crises and responses, but also on international development cooperation. In this conversation, Carbonet explains how these different levels of humanitarian work cooperate and especially how economics contribute to a better understanding of the side effects and contributions of humanitarians in humanitarian action. So, without further ado, enjoy this conversation. Hello everyone, today I have a special guest, I'm very proud and honored to welcome to the next page our podcast here at the Library and Archives of UN Geneva, the Vice President of the International Committee of the Red Cross and Professor of Economics at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, Professor Gilles Carbonnier. Professor, welcome on the next page. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So you've been working mainly in three years, in three areas in the way I understand it, over the past 30 years. Uh, and these three areas are development economics, humanitarian action, and international trade. You've been vice president of uh, ICRC since 2018, mid-2018. You've been before with ICRC. You've been with on the board of MFS. You have a great career behind you. So tell us a little bit about yourself before we go into the core of the topic today, which is about the economics of humanitarian action. Well, I think, uh, Francesco, I've been really driven by the fact that I studied economics uh, in my youth, uh, you know, a master in economics after working and traveling in Latin America. And it was the mid-1980s. I went to see uh, places like Potosi, where in Bolivia uh, this city had been the main uh, hotspot for uh, silver, for gold, for mining extraction. It's been a very rich city in the past, and I hadn't seen such a place with this amount of inequality, of misery, of hardship. And I said, I, I should study development economics to understand this phenomenon. And from there, I had the chance to start after my studies as a delegate with the International Committee of the Red Cross. And while I was working in the field, the grid that everybody applied to understand what was going on was Cold War. East-West rivalry, the Soviet Union, the United States. And when I was in the field, be it in El Salvador, in Iraq, in Sri Lanka, I noticed that a lot of the dynamics behind the, 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 the armed conflict and the violence was economically driven. 
So I said, well, later in my life, uh, five, six years later, let's do a, a real doctoral research on the political economy of armed conflict and also the economics of humanitarian action. So many years later, actually, I, I went back to, to school, if you wish. I did my doctoral studies uh, in partnership with a program of the United Nations, by the way. And, and then from there, I developed a keen interest on the economics and the political economy of crisis and of humanitarian action. And today you're here with us to discuss the economics of humanitarian action or humanitarian economics. And um, let's take a closer look at what humanitarian economics means for those who have no specialist background in this area. I would like to mention that in 2015, you published this book called Humanitarian Economics, War, Disaster, and the Global Aid Market, which was very timely at the time, but it still is today because it, it delves with a number of issues that haven't really changed, and some of them actually got worse over time. So as a first step in today's, in today's topic, and for those listening who are, who are not you know, familiar with the concept, can you just tell us the main definitions and overall aspects of humanitarian economics? Yeah, uh, humanitarian economics is a, is a field of research and practice that deals with the economics of armed conflict, disaster, and aid. And uh, it's a domain that has been growing quite a lot in different, I would say, subcategories. But when I was uh, basically teaching on the matter, I thought, well, there is no single reference where kind of the knowledge that we have acquired can be subsumed for both students, but also for practitioners and policymakers. And uh, it looks at, on the one hand, it's the power of applying economic tools, economics methods, to better understand armed conflicts and, and disasters and crisis situations. And from there, it applies also these methods to better understand how bringing humanitarian assistance uh, aid interplay with the, the local dynamics. And at the same time, it's really also looking at market forces and economic dynamics and trying to understand how we can benefit from a deeper, uh, deeper grasp, for instance, of household economics, but also of market forces in armed conflict, how we interpret prices that go up and down, etc., and how we can actually adapt our response to be more relevant, more effective. And finally, I think that there is always a tension between, uh, especially speaking for the International Committee of the Red Cross, between norms, international law, and negotiations in the ground. And when you enter into negotiations, of course, you have to understand the political economy, the interests at play to try to achieve what we are trying to achieve, respect for international humanitarian law, a reduction of the number and intensity of violations. And actually, I'm convinced that humanitarian economics has a huge untapped potential to assist us, not least now with advances in behavioral economics, where we get better at understanding how to influence the behavior of combatants, how to influence the behavior of decision makers, be it through what is called nudging, but also be it by bringing uh, a, a deeper understanding not only of the formal aspect of uh, mainstreaming the law, 
into, uh, for instance, the military doctrine, but also the informal socialization of restraints to so violence. So when we look at the interaction between economics and humanitarian aid, uh, natural disaster relief and all of that, the way you've been explaining, we see this interaction that has potential, that I help us understand better, etc. But I wonder if we change perspective and we look at humanitarian aid as an industry, as a business, I really wonder if there is a dark side of compassion in a way, so a place where market forces and financial interest influence a little bit too directly uh, the political economy humanitarian response. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you look at that both as a specialist in the domain but also a practitioner at the Red Cross? I think uh, your question is very interesting because it touches upon, for me, what is a paradox. We tend to always oppose reason, rationalization, with compassion. And uh, I think that it is not as simple as that. Actually, the father of economists, Adam Smith, wrote uh, beautifully about the role of compassion in the framework of people being still... Uh, self-interested in a way. And I cannot resist, if I may, just quote uh, Adam Smith back then. Uh, Actually, it's at the beginning of his famous book on the theory of moral sentiments. And in his, you know, wonderful style, he wrote, how selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principle in his nature which intersects, which interests him in the fortunes of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing except the pleasure of seeing it. So you see, for Adam Smith also, from the very start, uh, 1759, if I'm not mistaken, he was uh, looking at actually the fact that if you have uh, what we call today psychological dissonance, uh, and you see people suffering, or you know that people are suffering, there is something in human nature that uh, actually uh, uh, makes compassion quite rational in a way. And I think a lot of research today in terms of uh, cognitive science, uh, looking at uh, brain imaging techniques, shows that sometimes when we can give something, especially to people in distress, the pleasure we derive is very similar to the pleasure you derive when you get an increase in your wage. You get a wage increase. And it's, it's very interesting because it resonates with what Adam Smith wrote back then. So I think the main question is to reflect about reason and compassion in a way which is not so uh, black and white, but that's really look deeper into how to mobilize compassion, uh, uh, but also based on reason for effective and relevant impact and outcomes. And of course, we cannot ignore emotions, because especially in armed conflicts, uh, emotions such as uh, longing for revenge, fear, abound. And what I show in, in, in my book, and I think it's a major topic of my book, is to say that economists can bring a lot to the table to increase our improvement, but it needs to be in a cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary dialogue with psychologists, with anthropologists, with historians, political, uh, political uh, uh, <clears throat> scientists and others. And uh, uh, too often in the past, 
economists have tended to work on their own thinking that they know or we know. And I think that today, uh, gladly, we see much more fertile cross-disciplinary engagement and engagement between academics and practitioners. And that's a, that's a great point, and I think um, I would love to have more time, later on we'll have more time to discuss more about these angles that also pertain to, to, um, to academy um, in, the, in the economics of, of aid. But just staying a little bit longer on humanitarian economics per se, I wanted to ask you, now that ODA has become a fraction of financial fluxes, um, when you compare, for example, foreign direct investment and ODA, you can see over the past 30 years really an inversion of, of the values of those two, um, two variables. Um, remittances, for example, is another, is another very striking uh, example of how ODA has shrunk, both shrunk and been overtaken by these other financial fluxes. So it makes me wonder, in terms of the whole governance of humanitarian aid, which is still, I assume, in the hands of, of, of uh, official governments, what is the impact of this, this equilibrium or this big, big change in financial fluxes on the role of donor governments? So when I joined the humanitarian sector back in the 90s with DHA at the time, it was very clear that the money was coming from those who were also managing the political decision-making processes. And so it was easier for us to identify, you know, this, this is the virtual board uh, of bosses that are basically ruling the system. Today, it seems that when you compare what's happening in the political boardrooms and the United Nations and the figures, the charts of, of financial fluxes, it's all basically up in the air. How do you find your 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 way in this sort of new jungle? Well, this is uh, indeed, uh, if you look at the humanitarian market, not in isolation, but what you propose to look at the humanitarian market within the global international financial flows. You're right. Uh, humanitarian aid is part and parcel of ODA, Official Development mm -hmm. Assistance. When you started with DHA, when I started by the end of the 1980s with the ICRC, ODA, Official Development Assistance was the single largest f uh, inflow in the developing world uh, in terms of resource transfers. And very rapidly, in 1992-1993, both migrant remittances but also foreign direct investment by companies uh, you know, increased and, and actually uh, are multiples of uh, Official Development Assistance. So a lot of people told me, yeah, but look at humanitarian crisis or places where humanitarian aid is required, it's not the case. And it's not true. If you look at uh, one of the latest reports of global humanitarian assistance, they show that if you just take the 20 top recipient countries of humanitarian aid, humanitarian aid makes just 8% of total inflows from abroad. And it's less than 12% foreign direct investment, 14% for loans, both official and, and commercial loans, and 37% remittances from migrants abroad. So you see that we have to understand that we have to liaise and open up to engage others who have more means 
and sometimes more impact in terms of livelihood, in terms of, uh, of, uh, of the situation on the ground. And I think that realizing that uh, humanitarian aid, even in uh, countries that are top recipients, accounts only for a small fraction, is really a, a call to see how can we leverage the power of other actors and, and other flows that may actually make quite a difference, both in humanitarian negotiations, but also uh, on the fate of the most vulnerable people. And, uh, of course, uh, if you just compare remittances and humanitarian action, remittances, 95-97% goes directly in the pocket of the households who receive those remittances from the relative abroad. Humanitarian action, well, you have to, of course, pay for the uh, administration, the salaries, the logistics, and so forth. So probably 40-50% makes it finally, in terms of resource flows, uh, directly to the people affected. So we have to really take stock of what it means in terms of being able to leverage and partner with others or mobilize others in order that they can respond to some of the key challenges related to maintaining or restoring critical vital infrastructure, or funding public policies, for instance, for displaced people uh, who require immediate assistance, but also longer-term socio-economic reintegration. And that's a perfect segue where I wanted to what to where I wanted to take the conversation next, which is to discuss a little bit uh, about your experience as a humanitarian. Uh, you've been a humanitarian for, for a long time, you still are. Uh, you were just, I was following you on the social media, your missions in Latin America and then in Egypt. And so you're very much involved in these things. And I, first, first I wanted to, con to make the connection between your, your, this first-hand experience that you have, both in the field and at headquarters, both, both Médecins Sans Frontières and ICRC, and more generally also as an economist, and that is really rare to find in one human being, these, these three aspects. So I'm, I'm, very, I'm very curious about that. And I would like to start from the field. So as far as I know, you were posted in the field um, mainly in the late 80s, beginning of the 90s. I can mention that you were uh, head of subdelegation in Ethiopia, you were in Iraq, you were in Sri Lanka and El Salvador, so... A uh, few continents there. At that time, you just mentioned ODA was still the driving financial force in, uh, in, in, in our humanitarian world. And I wonder if passion and compassion were stronger at that time rather than the analysis of financial flows and the interaction between remittances and, and foreign direct investment and, and the ODA we have today. But more generally, I think our listeners would be would be curious about how has the field work evolved since then, when you were in the fields in the 80s and in, in the 90s and today? Well, uh, I think a lot has changed. You're right to say that ODA was, uh, you know, the most uh, important resource flow north-south. You had also south-north resource flow, but that's not the topic. But if you look at ODA when we started uh, working in the humanitarian sector, humanitarian action was just 3% of total ODA. So it was marginal. All the rest was development, finance, development assistance, 
And it was rather niche to the extent that my first field mission with the ICRC in El Salvador, I was in charge of a department which was cut in two because the north of the department was in the hand of the guerrilla. And when I started there, I thought, oh, this is humanitarian action. You had the ICRC full stop, not a single UN, <laughs> no NGOs, until 1990 when things changed rapidly because of uh, well, political situation. But back then, it was possible to find uh, kind of an important context where uh, the ICRC was quite alone and you had no, not so many actors involved in humanitarian action, which was a bit niche. And today, from 3%, the share of humanitarian assistance in development assistance has grown from 3 to 12, 15%. So today, it's not marginal anymore. It's, in, it's much more, uh, I would say, strategic in a way. So this raises the question of uh, the professionalization of the sector, which has grown a lot as a profession as well with a lot of experts from different, uh, you know, when I started, uh, you had no forensic specialists. Today, you have uh, dozens of them working with the ICRC as forensic doctors, as medical, uh, as, uh, as uh, legal forensics and others, because we need to be top-notch in the term of, you know, what are the technical uh, skills that we can bring that really help not only the communities directly affected, but also, uh, you know, people, uh, the, the local health system, primary health care, uh, morgues, and you name them. So if you don't have uh, expertise, uh, which is really uh, very, um, uh, yeah, which is, which is top-notch expertise, then you cannot provide the type of assistance which is really uh, specifically targeted, tailored to the context and to the needs. Then you also see that demands, and rightly so, of people affected by armed conflicts are, are various, but they are very strong. They demand connectivity, access to internet, possibility to reconnect with their families. They demand rightly not to fall in uh, aid dependence forever, over decades or generations. So how can we directly you know, work with market forces, understanding how we could find ways to assist them in generating incomes and finding opportunities, despite protracted crisis, protracted conflict. And I think this has changed a lot. So, of course, with that, there is more demand for accountability vis-à-vis -vis affected populations and vis-à-vis -vis taxpayers and donors. There is a lot more compliance requirements uh, quite partly for very good reasons, and sometimes uh, for you know uh, uh, to to, uh, to an extent which doesn't make sense from an economic perspective because the cost benefit of investing so much in over compliance might not make sense with regard to the limited resources to save lives and alleviate suffering. But still, I think we have to walk that 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 walk to really uh, to to really uh, become more relevant. So. What you see is that there is a many people and possibly people who have started uh, in the humanitarian sector in the 80s and 90s like we, we did, who see that as a bit what Max Weber would call the disenchantment of the, of the world, but it's the disenchantment of humanitarian action because it becomes highly regulated, professional, a lot of compliance requirements, bureaucratic. So we have to strike the right balance 
between becoming more effective, accountable, relevant, but at the same time not becoming overly uh, bureaucratic to the point that it stifles compassion. Because I'm convinced that compassion is really the essence, the fuel of the humanitarian impulse to assist, to save lives. As you know, the, the way to hell is sometimes paved with good intentions. So sometimes having good intentions is not enough. And I think what uh, humanitarian economists can bring is to make sure that uh, good intentions translate into uh, a, a road to, to heavens rather than to hell. And it contributes actually to better understanding the side effects and uh, the interaction between economic factors and what we are trying to do as humanitarians. So listening to you, one can really realize the big change in humanitarian, the practice of humanitarian aid in the field. And indeed, I totally agree with you. I've seen it over time. I've seen it recently uh, in a couple of visits that I've, I've done. My, my job now is no longer humanitarian, but I still go visit uh, friends and colleagues who do that. Now, if we move to the other side, the side of HQ, headquarters policy making, where the atmosphere is thinner, politics have a, have a, have a weight, there are in, in economic interests to be taken into account, political interests, diplomatic um, you know, interactions. And so I, I wonder, you're, you're perfectly place to, to have a, a combined analysis there because you have HQ positions today, you're the vice president of, of the, the, a big, big player known the world over. You're a board member with Médecins Sans Frontières. I was uh, a few years back. Okay, okay. so no, no longer that. No, no, okay. it was uh, okay. 10 years ago. Um, and, um, and you've been involved in a number of decisions that one could qualify as humanitarian policy uh, decision-making. So let's take a look now at how that has changed and maybe I guess the most of the changes that you've been describing apply to H HQ as well, but maybe if you could focus more on what are the main things for humanitarian policymakers today in this world that has changed a lot since the 80s? Well, uh, I think one uh, issue which has changed a lot is that if we look at the crisis situation where we work, uh, most of them uh, relate to protracted situations of armed conflict and armed violence. And when I say protracted, I will just give you one example. I went back uh, one and a half year ago, just before the pandemic broke out, to Iraq. And in northern Iraq, uh, I came across uh, a colleague, an Iraqi colleague, whom I had the chance to hire in 1990. And he told me, look, I'm now working uh, with the government, but thanks God you are not assisting my grandchildren today as you did assist us. And I was, he was part of it uh, back then uh, with the wheat flour. Uh, uh, because we have lived in this situation all of my life as a, you know, first as a, as a young professional, then as a father, and now as a grandfather. So it's three generations that are hit by, by this type of situation, and they are hit, 
of course, first and foremost, by a situation of armed conflict which has been recurrent, but also by climate change and by uh, you know problem with drought and and uh, and sometimes flooding, plus today the pandemic which hit very hard in uh, in uh, Iraq. So. This compounds the vulnerabilities of populations that are already very vulnerable. And actually, I think as, uh, as uh, you know, working in the headquarters of a, of a large humanitarian organization, we need to see how we can best respond ourselves as a neutral, impartial, independent humanitarian actor to the situation that we face uh, for instance, in Iraq, but at the same time, how can we mobilize, how can we partner with others to try to find and carve out solutions uh, and spaces for innovations that will help the communities themselves actually out of these multiple and very complex uh, layers of crisis. So I think this is one major uh, issue. Another one which I think is quite welcome and I should have mentioned that in, when you ask what has changed in the humanitarian ecosystem since... Uh, I think it has become much more diverse. Uh, luckily, we took time, but I think we tried to get uh, rid of this dichotomy between expats and a category of expats and, and local staff to have really something where uh, we consider that we need high-level competent resident staff they may be from the country or they may be foreigners, but they are resident and, uh, and they stay in the country. And we need also uh, mobile staff who are able to be dispatched quickly to different places and have a, a certain number of uh, years of experience. And mobile staff can become residents and resident staff can become mobile. And I think we will see ever more this type of fluidity in large organization together with the multiplication of regional, national, and local organizations. And I think working and supporting these organizations is key. Of course, in the International Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement, our natural partner are always the national societies of the Red Cross and Red Crescent and their local chapters. But I think uh, overall in the humanitarian ecosystem, this is a major trend, which uh, I think we all very much welcome. Then, in terms of uh, the challenges uh, that you that uh, you asked me about, another issue is how do you how do you find not only the arguments but the coalitions to effect change in certain policies to promote an environment which is really helpful in terms of uh, you know. Uh, promoting what some people refer to as the triple nexus, but it's basically get people out of these uh, cycles of uh, protracted crisis. And this is, I think, uh, a critical issue as well, <clears throat> which is very important when engaging uh, you know, in humanitarian diplomacy efforts with political leaders. And humanitarian, we can, even if we are emergency-driven, actually we can really bring to the fore long-term issues and the long-term interests of sometimes political leaders who are driven more by electoral cycle, which are shorter. And there are many examples where we see that we have certain populations which are either unattended or which are left in limbo. And we, I think, have a role 
in trying to draw attention to the mean to long-term consequences of not acting and the need to actually uh, uh, engage and find solutions. Uh, of course, we as humanitarians, we are used to working primarily in developing countries or less well-off countries, and we see that we have now global uh, crisis that hit everyone, but mm. they don't hit everyone the same way. Yeah. And as I mentioned, it's often those who are, who are already debilitated because of many years of protracted crisis, or protracted conflict that suffer most. And uh, we need to mobilize. And what I see as a, as a, as a trend is that the development community that is really looking on how to strive and implement the sustainable development goals, they realize that where it will be most difficult to implement, the, especially the first goals on essential needs, will be precisely in those places where humanitarian actors have access and are active. So there is, I think, greater interest from development uh, banks from development actors to see how they could uh, engage in countries uh, across the Sahel, for instance, or uh, in the Afghanistans uh, of, of the world to see how they could actually kickstart a, a, a more solid development process uh, or sustainable development process. And I think that it requires uh, really to bring this nexus ID into motion. And what I found as most interesting is to go directly to the field with the heads of humanitarian policy and development policy from our major donors and to see for ourselves in the field how actually everything in, interacts, as in intertwined, and from there have a, a conversation on what we can do together, rather than spending ages in abstract conversations where we always bang on institutional silos, on administrative uh, boundaries. So it's a way that really I think the humanitarian, it's in our DNA to anchor what we do and what we say in field reality. And uh, I think that this is the way we could bring uh, policymakers, uh, development actors, possibly even you know, people from the private sector, uh, people from technology schools, to really look and understand the reality of uh, uh, communities affected by armed conflict, by... Uh, by uh, a disaster, and with them uh, see what can be designed which makes most sense to address actually what they tell us, which is, well, we don't have any opportunity, and uh, we need opportunity, or else I don't know how I will raise my children in this place, and uh, I don't see a future for, for me and my, my family. So I, as you mentioned, I was uh, a few weeks back in uh, Central America, and then in Colombia in the border with Venezuela and these are things we hear again and again and uh, I think it's precisely by grounding this conversation in the, the reality, the lived experiences of the people affected that we can come up with solutions that 
cut across uh, boundaries and silos, which uh, certainly are uh, of another age. And to that point, given the um, the way interests, uh, economic and political uh, disputes are articulated today in our world today, in the in the in the in the two thousands. I wonder often about how can we preserve the humanitarian space and honor the famous humanitarian imperatives because the game has become not more complicated but certainly more complex. And in my times in DHA and OCHA, the world's humanitarian space meant a lot. It was still a space that we would try to protect, but from within the bubble, we were trying to make ourselves bigger so that the bubble wouldn't shrink that fast. And today, I have the feeling, I may be wrong, I hope I'm wrong, that that humanitarian space has shrunk so much. How do you guys do it at ICRC? How do you fight, really fight, to keep that space open and safe for humanitarian workers that are getting more and more uh, targets of organized violence and conflict? Actions. Well, I would subsume this under what I would call a principled pragmatism. It's being pragmatic, trying to find solutions that have an impact for the people we want to assist, to protect, to prevent harm from being done, but based and anchored into our principles, humanitarian principles. And there is a tension of course, between the purity of the principles and the murky reality on the ground. And what we try to do, <clears throat> and I think this is where the political economy of armed conflict and the political economy of aid can assist us, is to find how we can improve the situation. For that, you have to understand what are the interests at play. If you don't, you know, what are the interests of the different actors which wield an effective influence on the population, be they state or non-state, and how can we on that basis find levers? And the, the political economy analysis uh, is really powerful in that sense, but it's also powerful in terms of trying to come to grip with some of the challenges related to the security of our staff. Understanding by starting a large operation, which interests will be affected and how. And how we can make sure that uh, some of these powerful interests which will be affected by the mere fact that uh, you bring uh, you know, massive food assistance or, or other type of resources. I think this is something which is not rocket science. You don't need to be an economist. But these are simple tools to understand who wins and who loses out and how can we then manage the situation both to find levers for humanitarian negotiations as well as to uh, reduce risks in terms of the security of our staff. And so let's go a little bit deeper in this. Um, in this part of this conversation I wanted to have more your views and knowledge as, as an economist, as a professor even. And so let's go deeper into um, what is humanitarian economics bringing to the domain of humanitarian assistance and aid. We've gone, we've followed through your words, this, this long change, this arc 
of practice between the 80s and, and today. So just to put it simply, what should humanitarians learn from economists and perhaps even vice versa if you can spare a few, a few minutes there? Certainly, certainly. I think, uh, you know, understanding world economics and, and the political economy of, of uh, the crisis we work in can really inform and improve uh, our capacity to find incentives and levers to achieve uh, humanitarian objectives. It can also, you know, help us better, uh, better measure the humanitarian outcomes that we achieve or we don't. And today, both with big data, but also new methods and new softwares that economists routinely use to run uh, quasi-natural uh, quasi experiments, we can really become a bit more sophisticated in not spending uh, a huge amounts of time and money, but designing evaluations to better inform us about what works, what doesn't, and build on what does work uh, in order to, to, to improve uh, our response. I think we can also better understand and use the power of markets to uh, preserve and improve livelihoods and to help create opportunities. And uh, I think the drive towards cash assistance has brought the humanitarian sector to be much more sensitive to market dynamics, market forces, uh, and to understand and interpret why suddenly uh, some uh, prices of key commodities uh, skyrocket or to the contrary plunge and what it means for the livelihood of people and what we can do and what is the right type of intervention. Uh, I, I also think that uh, behavioral science and behavioral economics can help us a lot uh, in trying to influence, as I mentioned, the behavior of, of especially those who take part in hostilities. And uh, finally, I think that uh, cost-benefit analysis can help us engage on uh, understanding how we can sometimes support our efforts to promote and enforce international humanitarian law and international human rights law uh, and, and appropriate uh, behavior and restraint in the use of force. Now, on the other question, I think economists have a lot to learn, and I, as an economist, have learned tremendously uh, from engaging in humanitarian work. Uh, and the first thing I think economists can really learn is that orthodox recipes don't apply everywhere the same way. And uh, that context matter. And I'll give you just one example, which was a shock that really spurred my interest in devoting part of my life to the topic. In 1995, at the Graduate Institute of Development Studies here in Geneva, they invited a former economic advisor to the Rwandan government. And this former advisor was there from 91 to the genocide in 94, and told us, well, you know, we knew that economic orthodoxy and recipes that we were advocating and introducing with reform of the coffee sector, reform of uh, you know, price liberalization, etc., was creating huge tensions at the very time the regime was engaged on peace negotiations and in, in uh, structural adjustment processes and where the price of coffee had plunged. 
But this was none of our business because this is politics. And we were there as economists to provide economic advice. And I think uh, this is not possible anymore today. And we have to engage much more on understanding how different economic uh, policies, economic recommendations actually will play out at the micro level, at the level of households, at the meso level, markets, and at the macro level. Uh, drugs eradication has been always you know, also another issue. I think if we want to deal with informal and artisanal mining in many conflict space, we have to come to grip with that. Then uh, the last point, which I think is also interesting for economists and others, is that humanitarians, we understand being on the ground that authority and legitimacy is shared among both formal and informal actors, among state and non-state actors. And that de facto legitimacy and authority is often wielded by informal actors and that state actors have also non-state functions and roles that might dictate their behavior. This is the case, by the way, everywhere, but it's particularly pronounced in uh, place in certain uh, conflict environment. And understanding that raises the question of how do you uh, design and introduce economic policies that's fair a chance of being implemented and fair chance of having a positive effect. And I think it's coming to grip with what we call hybrid political orders that is also quite interesting for uh, economists who want to engage on this domain. This is really interesting. Thank you for spending time on this. Um, we cannot conclude this conversation without explaining to our listeners what's the nexus. You mentioned it once, then the second time you mentioned it, you even talk about tribal nexus. I have a very fuzzy idea of the tribal nexus, but I remember very well the pains of my time, your time as well, was called the, the relief to development Continuum is actually wasn't a continuum. It was a canyon between the two, and um, I, I lost touch with some of that policy discourse. But I think there is still a, a very big gap there. So let's talk about the nexus. What is it? How do we address it? Well, I think we need much more than just this uh, uh, podcast to, to 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 really sort out what it is and how we should address it because it's endless conversations. But I think for me, it's mainly realizing that uh, in many parts of the world, people are affected simultaneously by uh, endless armed conflict, where the international community is not able to bring a political solution. And in the meantime, uh, we try to bring humanitarian assistance, but humanitarian assistance is not a solution to protracted conflict. It can soften suffering, alleviate suffering to some extent, uh, save lives, but this is not good enough. So the question is, how do we uh, try to work in places where people want security, they want access to opportunities, and they see their opportunities reduced because of climate change and the impact of climate change, uh, which is quite dramatic in many uh, places where, by the way, about 80% of the countries most affected by climate change are countries which are uh, suffering from uh, armed conflict as well. 
and then uh, to the pandemics and, and uh, failing human uh, health system. So people want to uh, find, you know, access to essential services, access to opportunities to make a living and a dignified life. And I think that it's high time to put our acts together, those uh, in the, you know, in the what we call the international community, to try to see how we can each of us contribute with due regard to our principles, to our modus operandi, how can we each of us contribute in a way which is not a zero-sum game, but in a way which is creating new synergies and new, uh, you know, mobilizing new uh, energies in order to make a difference. And I think that this is where we are trying to see with uh, uh, companies, with uh, technology and, and, and social science uh, uh, research centers, with uh, development actors, with uh, um, others, how we can try to collectively respond. And uh, then I think more flexibility and fluidity is required also from donors. And uh, I know that uh, one, uh, several donors now in their budget, they have foreseen some flexibility to shift, uh, to shift budgets from what falls under traditional development assistance to humanitarian aid and vice versa. But I think we need more flexibility and fluidity uh, in order to address this. And finally, we need also to innovate and find ways to, uh, to create an enabling environment for the people. And uh, I think there uh, we need always to strike a balance between maintaining a principled approach which does not uh, deteriorate the access and the trust that we must have from all actors in a given situation with the capacity to reach out and carve out new partnerships. Now, based on what you just said, would you be able to give us in broad strokes uh, an image of the future of the humanitarian sector? Let's say maybe you know a quarter century ahead. Well, I think uh, it will be uh, an ecosystem which is extremely diverse. And I will just take one uh, important issue. I think that we need to see uh, a sector which is not only more diverse, but is really also uh, supported by emerging economies and emerging powers. And of course, the way we can engage as a long-standing established humanitarian organization, uh, emerging uh, economies and, 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 and powers uh, differs from uh, what we have been used to do with, uh, you know, in our comfort zones with uh, what some people call the, the usual suspects. So we have really to uh, engage uh, because humanitarian values, principles, and international humanitarian law are all universal. And nowadays, to uh, really to, to advance this universality of uh, humanitarian action and humanitarian law, we need to engage more with this broad diversity of actors. And I think it will become ever more diverse uh, with some organization like mine, like the International Committee of the Red Cross, that will certainly remain adamantly uh, you know, faithful to the principles of, uh, of course, impartiality, which is the bedrock 
of uh, humanitarian action together with humanity, but also neutral and impartial, uh, neutral and independent, sorry. And maybe other organizations will say, well, neutrality is not really what uh, we, fight, we stand for, but as long as you know, they, 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 they fight for humanity in an impartial manner, they still uh, you know, are part of this ecosystem. And uh, it will be quite interesting to see how we find the modalities to engage with these new actors. As we wrap up this episode, I wanted to ask you if there is one or two final thoughts that you want our audience to remember. What is that you want to inculcate in their heads <laughs> right now? Well, I think to wrap up, huh, I would say that applying what we call rational choice uh, to understand crisis situation and to understand how we can make an impact as humanitarian actors, it has a great and largely untapped potential to enhance the relevance but also the effectiveness of humanitarian action. But this has to be linked with interdisciplinary engagement between uh, those applying uh, rational choice, mainly economists and uh, quite a number of political scientists and others, and those who have much more, uh, you know, an uh, ethnographic inquiry, uh, field-based approaches, which is uh, really anchored in other methods. And it's through comparing these different, uh, you know, what the research provides that we can really inform policies. Second, we have to break silos between uh, the scholarly world and, and uh, practitioners. And uh, I think uh, there is more appetite today to have uh, practitioners who are always uh, overbooked and very busy with uh, responding mm -hmm. to, to the needs, uh, spending some time to, to draw insights from research and researchers being able to, I would say, convey the key message of what they do in a, in a jargon, but also in a, in a relevant manner that speaks to practitioners. So I think this is my main uh, message, and, and uh, we have to work together between the research uh, academic community and the humanitarian uh, sector uh, along those lines. If our audience is interested in finding out more about your work, with the ICRC and your teaching practice with the Graduate Institute here in Geneva. Can you suggest resources, uh, websites? Where do they go to find out more as a follow-up to this conversation? Well, there are uh, uh, a number of websites, of networks that is of interest to what we discussed today. For instance, there is this uh, Household in Conflict Network uh, HICN, they have a website with a lot of research on uh, actually how households uh, try to uh, make a living, survive and actually adapt uh, continuously to a crisis situation. Uh, there is also the Cash uh, Learning Partnership, CALP, uh, with a lot of uh, great resources on market analysis and evaluation of cash assistance project. There is, I can also mention, the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. And this center, they have created now a network on preventing conflict. It's called Network on Preventing Conflict Policies for Peace. And all of this is available online, and I think we see more and more papers being produced and, and resources. And of course, uh, my last advice, 
read my book in publications. <laughs> uh, so uh, beyond uh, the book, you, you can be mentioned, uh, Francesco, uh, Humanitarian Economics. Uh, for instance, there is also one paper which I drew, drew a, a bit upon uh, when discussing with you now, which is uh, an article that published in the journal Disasters a few years back called Reason, Emotion and Compassion. So uh, this is uh, available uh, online and I really encourage uh, all listeners to engage and, uh, and also uh, you know, to contact me if, uh, if they want to continue the conversation. Gilles Carbonnier, Vice President of the International Committee of the Red Cross and Professor of Economics at the Graduate Institute, thank you so much for being with us on the next page. Great pleasure. Thank you, Francesco. And that was our director, Francesco Pisano and Gilles Carbonet. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you're interested in looking further into any of the things that was mentioned in this conversation, head to our show notes. We would also love to hear from you. So if you have any comments or reviews, please don't hesitate to leave them. You can also reach out to us on Facebook. If you search for UN Library and Archives Geneva, you'll find us there. You can also message us on Twitter. Our handle is UNOC Library. We love hearing from you, so please don't hesitate to reach out. Until then, bye for now.